The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very eventful week in the world of summits. In fact, this is one of the rare opportunities that we get to see a Chinese summit back-to-back within a week of a U.S. summit, and it's going to be interesting to compare and contrast. As we are recording this, African presidents and prime ministers are now fully arrived in the U.S. Capitol ahead of the week, let's say, three-day U.S.-Africa Leader Summit. Back in Beijing, Xi Jinping is home again, but he had a busy week last week where he attended three summits, one in the China-Saudi Arabia Summit, the China Gulf Cooperation Council Summit, and the China Arab Leaders Summit. It was a fascinating insight into Chinese priorities, especially for those of us that we've been following Africa and to see the FOCAC summits that have happened over the years and the FOCAC conferences. This was done at a much more lavish, (laughs) I mean, to say lavish is an understatement, just at an extent. And boy, they really rolled out. We saw a purple carpet, not a red carpet. But Cobus, there was a lot that was accomplished at these various summits. Let me just read a few of the highlights, particularly around the China-Saudi Arabia deal summit. 35 commercial agreements valued somewhere around $30 billion in green energy, IT, transportation, cloud services, medical industries, logistics, construction, housing. I mean, there was a long list of deals that were signed. Bear in mind when you read the press releases on this that those are mostly MOUs, so they're not binding contracts, but the Chinese do tend to follow through on a good portion of those. But maybe not all 35 contracts and $30 billion will come through. But Saudi Arabia was the focus here, and it's the largest recipient of Chinese investment, It is now the number one, number two, depending on how you calculate it or depending on the month, oil supplier for China. Russia tends to also be up there right now. They account now for about almost 20% of all imported Chinese oil in 2022 so far. Last year, bilateral trade reached $87 billion. So this is a relationship, Cobus, that is built largely on oil, but it is diversifying very quickly. And it was just, again, a very interesting summit for us to watch. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, from our particular perspective, it was also really interesting to see the interplay between conventional energy and new green energy in, in, in this, you know, kind of where it's both, you know, oil plays this massive role in the relationship. And, you know, kind of clearly a lot of what China was doing there was to make clear that oil supplies stay stable. But then at the same time, there's all of this investment and all, or then, you know, all of this kind of like energy being invested in discussions around potential kind of different kinds of green energy collaboration. And you see, get a, a glimpse there of what the Middle East sees for itself in the future, you know, or like kind of mitigation plans, at least for, for the end of oil. So, so all of this is very, very interesting. And I kept wondering and seeing all of these deals, how the United States would respond. 
Well, so far, we haven't heard much out of the United States in response to the summit. It's just, again, a few days have passed only. But we want to get a perspective on what it all means and to try to put this in some bigger context. So we're thrilled to have on the show again uh, from Abu Dhabi, Jonathan Fulton, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and also a political scientist in the UAE. Jonathan, so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for taking time during this very busy season for you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, listen, there was a lot of takes on this, some good, some bad, but the summit's behind us. All three of the summits are behind us. The visit is in the rearview window. What's your big takeaway? Well, I don't think you'll be too surprised. You know, a lot of the media coverage I've seen that we've all seen has been framing this as a response to President Biden's trip to Saudi earlier this year. And I disagree with that. You know, uh, I think what that does, it takes a very narrow lens for aperture looking at what China and the Saudis have been doing for quite a while. If you go back to 99, when they had the first presidential visit to Saudi from China, when Jiang Zemin visited, you know, they really started to develop the relationship in a lot of meaningful ways. They started an energy cooperation uh, agreement back then. And then you saw in 2006, 2008, two trips from uh, then President Hu Jintao that took place, I believe, in like 14 months, which was unheard of at the time. You know, each one of these trips has developed the relationship in a pretty meaningful way. By the time she went in January 2016 and elevated the Saudis to this level of comprehensive strategic partner, which is the highest level of diplomacy in China's hierarchy, you know, you could see that it was a very important relationship for both countries. So to look at what happened in July when President Biden went to Riyadh and, and things didn't go so well and say, oh, well, she is now coming in to, uh, you know, clean up afterwards and, 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 you know, make a bunch of deals and, you know, position China in a big way. I think that really misses the longer arc of what's been going on for a very long time. And in a related point, like, you know, I also, I agree with you that, you know, that, that there was this kind of bias, you know, like kind of US-China geopolitical bias, you know, in the coverage. You know, in order to kind of move beyond that, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of your impression of what Saudi Arabia and the other kind of uh, Middle Eastern countries that where the leaders met with Xi, what their priorities are, like what would Saudi Arabia and company like to get out of China? Well, I mean, when you guys listed the agreements that were talked about or the MOUs, I think you hit on a lot of the big stuff. So obviously energy is always going to be very important. China's, you know, a major customer for all Gulf suppliers. We saw just a couple of weeks ago that Qatar signed this uh, very long-term LNG deal with China. Uh, That's important for Beijing because they're trying to diversify their energy sources. They want more clean energy. So LNG is going to be important for them. But also, you know, if you flip it, so we always see this this energy dynamic as being from the Gulf to China. Well, that's changed. And again, it got a lot of attention this past week when they signed all these MOUs. But you go back to the China Arab States Cooperation Forum ministerial meeting that happened in 2014. And Xi Jinping gave the opening address. And he said that he introduced this, uh, it's called the one plus two plus three cooperation framework. And in this, he said, these are three baskets of, of you know types of interactions we want to engage with Arab countries in. One, was energy, traditional hydrocarbons, two is trade investment, infrastructure construction, and three is nuclear, renewables, and tech. So renewable energy has been something they've been working on, you know, for for eight years now. They well, I mean, they've been working on it longer than that, but that's been a, an official priority between China and Arab countries since 2014. And they've been developing this over quite a while now. So you look at the biggest solar plant in the world is in Dubai, the Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum uh, solar plant. And that was built by a Shanghai company with a Saudi company as a joint venture that they worked on. So you start to see a lot more renewable energy playing into it and Chinese companies doing things like, you know, solar plant panels or projects in the Gulf. And for Gulf countries, that's incredibly important because they're tremendous users of energy. You know, I'm here in Abu Dhabi 
I look out my window in my neighborhood, there's just grass everywhere. And that grass is being watered using uh, aluminum smelting plants to, to desalinate a lot of water here. There's golf courses everywhere. There's a huge population that the pendulum really hasn't traditionally supported. They need to find different ways to use energy. And China's been playing a big role there. I think the other big thing is the tech. And this last point I'll make is just that, you know, again, when you look at the UAE, where I am, about 90% of the population is expatriate. And that is a big vulnerability, you know, because we saw in January when the Houthi attack hit Abu Dhabi, thankfully, minimal casualties from that. But should there be a bigger attack, of course, it's a pretty uh, combustible neighborhood at times. Uh, you can imagine a lot of the population, a lot of the productive workforce in this country would probably feel that they want to go back home. So to have 90% of your country be foreigners, I think is, is quite a vulnerability. And when China comes in and says, look, we're really good at these digital technologies and AI that can help you address some of your labor issues, that kind of reduces some of that vulnerability, I think, by being able to use tech to solve some of those labor issues. So there's a lot of stuff that China does here that I think that Gulf Arab countries find very, very useful. This was a difficult summit for US and European journalists to get their heads around. In the run-up to the summit, you had some very interesting comments where you had reporters who kind of came to you and had almost this preconceived notion as to what the story was. That is, you know, Saudi Arabia's pivoting away from the United States, China's filling the vacuum, and they had this all contrived. And you kind of came in and told them, well, it's not quite that simple. You have to look at the, the geopolitical and the narrow political interests and strategic interests of each Arab country to better understand this. And then they went back to you and said, well, my editor says that's not the story. Talk to me about the interactions you've had with the press over the past week and trying to explain this story and then the coverage that you've seen that came out of it in terms of whether or not they started to come around to your thinking. Okay, well, to be fair, I think most of the journalists that I've spoken with are regional correspondents, and I think they know the story pretty well. You know, it's pretty hard to miss it if you live here. You can see it everywhere. I think the issue is that a lot of these big agencies do have you know, the story before they go out for the reporting. And I talked to journalists and they would say, look, I'm not certain that this is the angle, but if you give us enough ammunition, maybe we can go back and say, look, there's a different frame that we can use. But that rarely works because I think a lot of the big outlets would, there seems to be great power competition hard baked into everything these days. And I find that really troublesome and dangerous, right? Because that's just not how things look from the region. If you're in a Middle Eastern country, nobody sees China the way that I think, um, you know, the Beltway sees China. Uh, I was talking with some folks from the region last week, and they were talking to an American who was in the room, former government official, and they're saying, look, in the Cold War, we could see the Soviets as an existential threat, and we could align with you against that because we were, we were seriously concerned about this, but we don't see China as a threat. We see it as an opportunity. And I think this idea that this binary that keeps getting pushed in the media kind of feeds into that. Because I think when I talk to the journalists, when I talk to officials, when I talk to any number of people, after 20 or 30 minutes, we're kind of like aligned in how we're looking at this. Kobus, there's something similar in Africa as well. I think that you've complained about the same thing, that these narratives are baked into the story. And one of the things that you hear from a lot of the regional experts, or even a lot of the journalists, is that not everything is about the U.S. or China. It's about sometimes the host countries having their own agendas. And, and Kobus, I think you, you would probably have a similar complaint to Jonathan. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, there's uh, on the one hand, there tends to be then, you know, kind of a, a flattening of what of, of of the not only the complexity and the, the needs of 
local actors, but also the differences and, you know, different power dynamics between them, you know, and the kind of things that, they, that they're trying to get out of external actors against each other. But then also, I think there tends to be a kind of an assumption, a kind of, there's this, even a kind of a flattening, I think, of China and the US as well, you know, this kind of assumption that, that it is possible or even, or that there is even thinking in China to kind of supplant the US you know, kind of in its various roles. And then in the process, as if, as if China and the US are somehow kind of duplicatable, you know, like, you know, they're exchangeable in a way that there's you know, something, a kind of an underestimation, I think, of how unique the United States is in the world. And Jonathan, in, in relation to that, like one, one of the points where I did see that kind of acknowledged a little bit, but maybe not enough in, in the coverage is in relation to security. Like, you know, kind of a lot of people have been pointing out that China's to a large extent a kind of a beneficiary of the of US kind of security provision in in the region. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that about you know kind of like wh- where is the US security role now and where where do you see it going and and what would China like it to be? Yeah, so I think like every extra regional power that has deep interests in the Gulf, everybody is relying on the US security umbrella to an extent. Uh you'll see Japan, India, Korea, the EU, the UK, you know, any number of actors that have important economic or political engagement in this region are largely doing it under the U.S. umbrella. Now, some of those countries are contributing in, in different ways, but you know, ultimately the U.S. is the preponderant power in the region. And we keep seeing these stories. The headlines keep coming every few months. You know, As the U.S. pulls out, China fills a vacuum. That's not the case. The U.S. isn't going anywhere. The U.S. is by far the biggest actor here. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at an event here in Abu Dhabi and the presidential advisor, Anwar Gargash, he was the former minister of state for foreign affairs, uh, gave the keynote. He said, look, the U.S. is by far our most important uh, bilateral relationship, full stop. You know, he wasn't going to say, but he just said, that's that's a fact. The U.S. isn't going anywhere. We know this. It's a very, very important actor politically, security-wise, economically. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot is that, again, with this binary, we keep hearing the U.S. is the security provider and China is the big economic actor, and that's that. And it really misses the depth of what, you know, the U.S. does here economically. And it's strange for me because you keep hearing American officials kind of complaining that China's controlling the narrative. But, you know, here in the region, all we ever hear, you know, with the CNN is here, CNBC is here, Bloomberg is here. You know, there's a, just a huge, broad, you know, U.S. media landscape that's operating in the Gulf uh, sharing the U.S. narrative. And you see things like uh, the U.S. UAE just signed off on this uh, tech cooperation agreement a while ago. They did the same with the Israelis a while ago. U.S. is here in a big way. I think the issue is when those other countries I listed, you know, the Europeans, the Brits, the Japanese, the Indians, they're all U.S. allies or partners. And that doesn't come with the same types of uh, considerations, I guess, for Washington as it does when China starts to play these bigger roles. You know, uh, there was a, an interview in 2014 when Barack Obama was talking to Tom Friedman and, you know, President Obama was complaining that China's a free rider. You know, when is China going to start playing a bigger role in the region? And you could see that the preference from D.C. is we'd like China to play a bigger role in the region as long as it bandwagons with our preferences. And when China started to do these Belt and Road projects in the region, I think Washington got spooked a little bit and said, hey, you know, this isn't the way we want you to behave. We'd like you to to follow our lead on these things. You know, China says, look, we're not trying to challenge you. We're providing public goods, which is how they they often describe these these big projects, is that it's providing uh, public goods, providing economic stability, which lessens security threats, whether it's, you know, uh, attraction of anti-state ideologies or whatever. But I think still whatever China does here is going to be seen through that lens of, lens of competing with the U.S. And, and, and these important realms. 
Let's go through a few of the outcomes that came on Friday from some of the various statements. And one of them was that Chinese President Xi Jinping wants Gulf countries, and particularly Saudi Arabia, to use the RMB, the Chinese yuan, more in buying oil. And it was noted on Twitter today by a number of experts in the field that says this was kind of a nothing burger statement because there's actually nothing stopping the Saudis and the Chinese today from using the RMB. I mean, this is not really a big statement in that sense. There's no impediment to them doing it. They're using the dollar because it's practical for both sides to do that. What's your interpretation of that statement? Was there any significance to it? I think we've seen a lot of the same Twitter threads, and I like all of them because, yeah, you know, there's there's a reason why they do it in the U.S. dollar. It's not to support the U.S., it's to support their own interests, right? It's it's good to have those U.S. dollars to do other things with. If they were to sell in um, oil for renminbi, then they could use the renminbi to pay for contracts or to pay for whatever they're buying from China. But, you know, having those U.S. dollars for both sides is, is very useful. Another thing that I think gets missed in this idea of the petroyuan is that, you know, every GCC country's currency is pegged to the dollar. And if suddenly they're going to start selling oil, you know, big scale in, in renminbi instead and create this petroyuan, that would seriously undermine the faith in the dollar, right, as the reserve currency. It would have pretty important ramifications for the dollar globally. It would affect their own currencies. A lot of these countries' sovereign wealth funds are heavily invested in U.S. markets, U.S. Including the Chinese, by the way, right. with about a trillion dollars of, of treasury bills that they still own. Exactly. So you see the same dynamics here. So the idea that they're going to shoot themselves in the foot by uh, saying, hey, we're going to show Washington a lesson. We're going to do something that's going to be economic suicide for us. I don't get it. I understand why the story keeps getting used because it's a pretty exciting one, but it doesn't seem very realistic. So why does she tout this? Why did he use the platform to tout this if it in fact is in China's interest to sustain the dollar? I think, and you should probably ask an economist rather than political scientist on this one, because I can't go very deep. I've already kind of gone as deep as I can on currency stuff. Fair enough. But do you think there's a political aspect to it? Is it because the economics don't make a lot of sense? Because we heard from the economists on Twitter, but is there a geopolitical messaging that he's trying to convey? I think that one thing China's been doing recently is they've been creating uh, an alternative narrative in the region. You know, the region has been dominated by the U.S. since the end of the Cold War. And you can see a lot of what China's been doing internationally, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, a lot of its policies and its messaging have been, there are more than one ways to do things. You know, we don't have to keep doing things in this kind of liberal international order promoted by the U.S. and the West. You know, we have agency in this. And I think in a lot of what China's been doing in the Gulf, whether it's, you know, talking about the, you know, using the Shanghai for trade. You saw when six foreign ministers from the region went to China earlier this year and met with Wang Yi. And one of the messages he sent at the end was, you know, the region doesn't need hegemony from the outside. The Middle East should be controlled by people from the Middle East. You see a lot of messaging that's saying, look, you don't need to rely on the US the way you do. There's other actors you can work with. I don't think that means China wants to replace it. I think they're just trying to plant some seeds of doubt. I think if they can weaken some of those alliances or partnerships in the Middle East, then that also plays to China in Asia as well, which is, I think, a far more consequential region for Beijing. You know, we saw during the Trump years that when he talked about giving North Korea a bloody nose, we could see how the Japanese and South Koreans, their bilateral deteriorated pretty quickly. I think for China, that's a dream scenario where all these U.S. allies start to peel away from the U.S. And I think if they can plant some seeds of doubt here in the Gulf, then that might have a, a spillover effect in Asia as well. 
you know, one of the themes you were looking out for in relation to these summits is whether there's going to be any movement in the relationship between China and the Gulf Cooperation Council. So I was wondering, you know, kind of what you made of progress in that field. And one of your colleagues at the, the Atlantic Council, Ahmed Aboudou, said that, you know, kind of he said that there was an absence of China GCC trade like that that issue wasn't really touched on as much as he as he thought uh, kind of in the discussions and it was telling and he said quote um it reveals that despite the, the mutual high trade volume pageantry and extensive public relations the gcc countries are still hesitant regarding some aspects of their partnership with china so i was wondering what you made of the progress or non-progress in that relationship I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. I mean, that was something I was watching going into the summit because China and the GCC have been trying to get a free trade agreement done for decades now. And you saw in 2016 when President Xi went to Saudi, he said, we want to get this done by the end of next year. And they had, I think, four rounds of talks. They were getting closer and closer. And then the split between Qatar and the uh, you know so-called anti-terror quartet in Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt effectively put the, the GCC on hold until they resolved it in uh, early 21. So it was, they couldn't make any headway on that, even though they had gotten pretty close from what I've heard. They couldn't get past the finish line. So after the summit last January, when the GCC kind of resolved its issues, there was talk that, you know, we saw uh, Yang Jiechi, for example, came to the Gulf. There was talk about getting back on track with the FTA. Uh, Wang Yi went to Qatar to meet with the Taliban. Reportedly, he had talked to Qatari leadership again about the FTA. So I thought maybe we would see a little more about that in this summit. I don't know that it not happening means much. It could just mean that they're still working on it. You know, they're famously hard to do. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if it's symbolic of any kind of hesitancy on the Gulf side. I mean, we see a lot of free trade agreements being signed uh, recently. So the UAE signed one with India uh, earlier this year. Uh, they signed one with Turkey. They signed one with Israel. Um, the GCC is working on one with, with South Korea. It seems to be the order of the day. And I think what's happened in the Gulf is that there was a period after the Arab Spring when a lot of countries in the region started adopting a more muscular foreign policy for the region as they're trying to kind of deal with the issues of, of uh, you know, kind of a, a lack of uh, political control through the region. And you saw the UAE or the Saudis start to be much more assertive than typically they had been in foreign policy. And about two years ago, you saw recognition that that probably wasn't the best way to go. And you saw them working on kind of knitting the region together economically um, in different ways. So you see, again, a lot more trade happening, a lot more trade deals. So I imagine there'd be a big appetite for the one with China. I don't know why it didn't happen, but I don't think it means that it's, it's, it's dead, certainly. I think they're probably still going to keep working on it. Well, there was a dust-up that occurred on Saturday after the publication of the China-Arab joint statement. And let me read a line from this joint statement. It said, quote, bilateral negotiations, and this is about some disputed islands in the Persian Gulf between Iran and the United Arab Emirates. And in the joint statement, it said, bilateral negotiations in accordance with the rules of international law and to resolve this issue in accordance with international legitimacy. Now, that sounds rather benign, doesn't really sound that controversial, but Iran flipped its lid on Saturday, called in the Chinese ambassador to Tehran, Changhua, and read him down about their dissatisfaction, which is diplomatic ease for being pissed off. They felt that they were blindsided by the Chinese for the fact that these islands, in their view, are not up for negotiation. And what surprised me in some respect was China, being very sensitive about islands that are in disputed territories, would put itself in the middle of this dispute. 
It also brought to mind our last conversation that we had with you on the show, where you emphasized that China's interests in the UAE and in Saudi, for example, are far greater than the Iranians. And in many ways, it felt like Iran was the missing actor in this whole week that we had last week. Can you explain to us a little bit about the dispute over the islands and the role of Iran or the lack of a role of Iran in the past week? Yeah, that was a juicy bit for sure. Um, So the islands were considered territory of the Emirates the day before, I believe, the UAE became a sovereign, independent federation, the Iranians seized them. And this has been a point of contention. That was in 1971. That's been a bone of contention ever since. I think the international communities all agreed that these were, you know, Emirati islands. The Iranians don't show any interest in giving them back. So it's kind of something that's always on the back burner in the bilateral relationship, or even within the GCC in Iran, is, you know, the idea that this aggressive neighbor has a history of seizing territory has always been a problem. It was really interesting that China weighed in. I thought last week there might be a chance we'd see Xi tag on a quick stop in Tehran um, because he did that in 2016. You know, his trip to the region in 2016, he went to Saudi first, then he went to Cairo, met with the Arab League, and then kind of he surprised a lot of us by stopping in Tehran on his way home. And, you know, Tehran and the UAE and Saudi are all at that comprehensive strategic partner level. So I thought, you know, coming to the Gulf, visiting the Saudis and not going to Tehran might you know, be a bit of a diplomatic insult to the Iranians. But at the same time, you know, looking at the domestic situation in Iran right now with all these protests that have been going on for months now, you know, reminds us of the revolution in 79. I'm not saying that the same outcome is in, in the works, but in in 79, Hua Guafeng was on his way home and he stopped in Iran, met with the Shah. And then, you know, very soon afterwards, the Shah was toppled. And, this and, really- and Hua Guafeng himself didn't last very long. So let's just remind everybody who Hua Guafeng was. He was the interim leader between Mao and Deng, who had a very short tenure. The superstitions around Hua Guafeng may be haunting President Xi. So maybe there's that. Maybe he just thought, look, given the domestic situation they're in right now, the last thing I should be doing is being seen, you know, tipping the scale on one side or the other. But I'm glad you brought up that last episode. I'd forgotten that we talked about that last time, about how it's always blown me away. I've been in the Gulf since 2006, and really up until very recently, the orthodoxy has always been that, you know, Iran is China's natural partner in the Gulf, that China and the GCC countries, this is um, opportunism, you know, that they're going to dump them, that the US can lean on its Gulf partners. And that would mean that China would have to work towards Iran. And it's always stupefied me. And I guess it feeds into a lot of different interests to have this idea. But when you look at the numbers, it just blows me away that anybody can get away with this story. The Chinese ambassador to the UAE gave an interview last month when he said that there's now 400,000 Chinese nationals living in the Emirates. There's a few thousand, like I think fewer than 5,000 in Iran. You know, you look at the trade figures and China consistently does more trade with the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, maybe not, and, and the Omanis. And with Bahrain and Kuwait, it's pretty close to the volume of trade with Iran. When you put the GCC countries together as a block, it's not even close. It's something like last year, 200 billion compared to like 9 billion. So, you know, the value of contracting, just right across the board, the GCC countries have a lot more to offer China than Iran does. I think Iran gives China a nice little bargaining chip that they can use in the bilateral with the US and they use it all the time. But I think the Iranians are aware of this and I think the frustration is probably mounting and they can see the depth of what China's been doing on this side of the Gulf and it probably gets people pretty worked up in Tehran. In the comments that you provided to the Atlantic Council earlier in, in, in the run-up to the visit, um, you made the point that one of the reasons to 
put so much emphasis on the relationship with Saudi Arabia is to deal with the global political implications of Islam and the centrality of Saudi Arabia in global Islam. And I was wondering, you know, kind of like as a kind of a temperature check on where China is in relation to the Islamic world, like I was wondering what this set of summits revealed. Earlier this year, we saw Wang Yi, for example, attend the summit for the Islamic Cooperation Organization, and they've been leaning a lot into kind of Islamic diplomacy. But of course, you know, obviously the the Xinjiang situation isn't going away. So I was wondering, yeah, as as I said, you know, I was wondering like what kind of, what what was the temperature check that you got out out of in that relationship this time around? Yeah, that's always an interesting story because it's kind of a non-story here. I think publics in the Middle East would feel differently about it, but a lot of the media is dominated by government in the region, so you don't hear, you don't see a lot of it, right? Like when I talk to my students, some of them who consume a lot of international media are aware, but the vast majority who get their media from the region have no idea what's going on. And I think the reason for this, well, there's there's a bunch, and I think they're all interesting. One is that when Chinese leaders talk about what they're doing in Xinjiang, they're pretty clear in saying this isn't about Islam. This is about an anti-state ideology that's motivated or animated by political Islam. And most governments in the Middle East have very strong concerns about that as well. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood is seen as an existential threat to a lot of regimes in the region. So when China frames it this way, and I'm not saying I agree with that framing, but, you know, China makes that point pretty consistently. And a lot of countries in the region will say, well, look, we've got that concern as well. You also hear China use use it as a cudgel to beat the U.S. with by saying, look, when we have this problem with political Islamist groups, you know, we put them in these camps where they learn new skills and get jobs and, you know, the, the way they describe what they're doing. And they'll say in the U.S., of course, puts everybody in Guantanamo or bombs the country or whatever. You know, again, it's a it's not only insulting in people's intelligence, but it's uh, it's just silly. But again, it feeds into this perception, I think, that's pretty widespread in the region. One thing that's interesting about this to me, about what China's doing in Xinjiang, is you keep hearing the PRC talk to the Middle East governments and saying, you know, the solution to insecurity, you know, is through development, it's through economic measures. If we develop your economies, if people have jobs, then they're not going to resort to these, you know, political violence or whatever. Why aren't they doing that in Xinjiang, right? If they've had decades of, you know, developing the economy there, then you'd think that these groups would need to be reoriented, would they? Well, they'll tell you that they haven't had a terrorist attack in, I think, five or six years in Xinjiang, and they credit the late, I think, what's the re-education camps or whatever, the vocational training, I don't know what they're calling it. It's interesting because outside of the China-Mideast dynamic, there's a lot of frustration with the Gulf positions on Xinjiang. So the Indian media picked up earlier this year how the Gulf countries summoned the Indian ambassadors throughout the region for you know remarks made by a BJP, not even the government but a a spokesperson for the ruling party who said some anti-Islamic things. And the Indian media called out and said, wait, you're calling out a party official for saying, you know, abusive things towards Muslims, and yet you're not saying anything about what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang. That is just absolutely duplicitous. And how they also then pointed out that the Gulf countries have been very quick to criticize European misdeeds and mistreatment of Muslims and the United States as well but yet remain silent on China. And so this is, it seems to be that this might start to strain some of the Gulf's ties with other countries, maybe outside of the, the China-Gulf relationship. Maybe. I think with India, so it's interesting because India is often left out of the conversation about this, you know, what's happening in the Gulf. It's always China and the US. And I've been doing a lot of different uh, engagements recently where I keep saying, look, you know, this great power narrative is China and the US always security 
the U.S. economy is China. Here in the UAE, China's the number one trading partner. India is a very close number two. And the difference is this country is very, very, very South Asian. You know, like probably half of the population is from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Um, and, and the Emirates, more than other places, will tell you they are West Asia as much as anything else. And that Emirates Airlines' first routes were to Pakistan, not to anywhere else. So well, they, they say the ties to South Asia are very strong in their views. Well played. I didn't know that about the airline. But it is true. I mean, I was talking to some American university students in, in Dubai in May, and they kept saying, wow, this is such an American or Western city. And I was like, are you? kidding me this is an asian city look around you everybody around you is either indian pakistani sri lankan filipino indonesian or chinese that's just how those cities work it's a pretty complicated dynamic because despite these cultural ties religious ties familial ties a lot of there's been a lot of marriage between you know over the over the generations you know india's always had a pretty rough relationship with islam and most countries in the gulf have been working with pakistan on a lot of pretty important things over the decades it's just been really the past 10 years or so that you've started to see these indian and GCC relations start to really improve. A lot of it is economic. I think a lot of it is, is strategic as well. You know, you can see Gulf countries saying, hey, if we can work more closely with India, then India is going to marginalize its relations with Iran. And you can see Indians going, hey, if we work more closely with the GCC, then they'll stop working with Pakistan. So you get this really kind of tit for tat dynamics happening here. But that's happening at a government to government level. I think still in the, in the region, a lot of people will look at you know, what the BJP did before Modi became prime minister when some, there were a lot of religious riots happening uh, when he was premier of a uh, province, I can't remember which one, and a lot of Muslim people were, were brutalized. And it feeds into an idea that, you know, historically India has done some pretty awful things to its, its Muslim population. And I don't think people have the same perception of China just because it's still kind of far away and new. Um, one other thing about the Uyghurs, and the last thing I'd say about this, maybe, unless you have any, one of go in a different direction. It's just that the Uyghurs are traditionally, or not traditionally, they're ethnically Turkic people. And that also feeds into regional geopolitics because most countries in the Gulf have had pretty tough relations with Turkey under uh, you know the current administration. They look at Erdogan and think this guy is, is trying to be a new sultan who's trying to take over the region. So they use this to whack him with and say, look, if you guys are so worried about uh, the Uyghurs, why doesn't Erdogan do something about it? You know? Just to, to kind of shift the focus to another major power, the, the Ukraine crisis has put us with China and Russia, has kind of pushed China and Russia closer together, you know, maybe, and, and you know, the, the, how, how close they are, is, you know, is an issue for debate. But I was wondering how Russia shook out or is shaking out in all of, you know, kind of as a kind of a Middle East partner, as China's relationship with Saudi Arabia and other kind of Middle East powers are also strengthening. Yeah, so this one is interesting because I think a lot of countries everywhere are looking at the Russian relationship as problematic. You know, in the beginning of the, the early days of the Russian, you know, invasion of Ukraine, a lot of countries in the Gulf uh, didn't jump fast enough for the Europeans, certainly, and for Washington as well. And you saw the same thing with China and Russia with partnership without limits. I think that's become tougher in the past few months. You haven't seen them really backing away, but I was at a conference about six or seven weeks ago and a Kuwaiti speaker was there and an American was kind of haranguing the GCC saying, why aren't you doing more? And this Kuwaiti guy got the mic and he said, look, my country was invaded by a larger neighbor and I hate hate what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You know, it just makes my blood boil. It reminds me of Iraq invading Kuwait and, and I'll you know, never accept it as a good thing. But you have to look at the country's strategic situation. I think a lot of countries in the Gulf 
equating economic interests with national or economic security with national security. Uh, they've had not very good oil prices for quite a while. They're countries that their national budgets are set to certain benchmark prices and they haven't been there for a long time. You know, when, when oil prices shoot up, then they start to be able to address some of those development issues as well. So it's, I don't know, maybe it's, it's naked self-interest, but you'll see, you know, they haven't been as, as on board as what I think most of their Western allies or partners would like. They have the reasons. I'm not sure I agree with them, but... Uh, well, it's the same situation out here in Southeast Asia. A lot of these countries have just said, A, this isn't my fight. B, when the music stops, somebody's going to be pissed with me, whether it's the Russians or whether it's the Americans or whether it's somebody else. So they just don't see a vested interest in in taking a side at this stage, especially for small powers. And I go back to Indian External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar's comments to saying that the Americans are accusing countries of sitting on the fence. He says, we're not sitting on the fence. These are conscious, active geopolitical considerations that we're making. We're not fence-sitting as if we don't know what to do. And I think that, again, goes back to the beginning of our conversation with that, you know, not looking at these situations from the vantage point of these countries. And oftentimes we look at it from, you know, 10,000 meters looking down. We've covered a lot of ground today. You've spent the past week speaking to everybody, following all these statements, all the announcements, all the meetings, everything. Your head must be spinning. It's, it must be exhausting. You, you deserve a break. But help us kind of close out this discussion and close out this whole adventure from the past week. What's the takeaway here? Well, I think the end was at the beginning, right? These are very mature sets of relationships. One thing that's kind of been weird to me is that a lot of the reporting has been saying, you know, that China and Saudi signed this comprehensive strategic partnership. Well, they did that in 2016. I guess they, they elevated it. You know, there's the story that this is the first China-Arab summit. But you know, since 2004, every two years, they've had these ministerial meetings of this multilateral called the China Arab States Cooperation Forum. This year, they were set to have a this meeting that takes place every two years. They did. They just called it the China Arab States Summit instead. You know, the same thing with China GCC Summit. They used to have every year or two the China GCC Strategic Dialogue. So none of these things are new. They're all being reported as new, but this has been going on for quite a while. I think the first China GCC strategic dialogue happened in 2010, and there have been several of them. So I think when it gets reported as the first summit, you know, the comprehensive strategic partnership, you know, it's jarring for a lot of folks who are watching it because most people aren't watching, you know, China and the Middle East. There's not many of us who are focused on this stuff. And when you see it, then you think, well, this fits into this, you know, all these other stories I keep hearing about, you know, a crumbling world order and geopolitical uh, realignments and, you know, what's going to happen. I think, you know, if you look at it over the longer arc, you'll see that this has been going on for quite a while. Um, there's a lot of meaningful stuff happening. These are mature relationships. They're not as threatening or scary as they seem when you look at it in this context. And I think it creates openings. Really, there's, there's always openings for countries like the U.S., to come in after a situation like this, uh, these summits and say, look, China said what they're going to say. Now now it's our turn. You know, it's not like the U.S. has to keep playing defense and, and China plays offense. I, I just don't understand this idea. The U.S. is by far the most important actor in the region, and that's not going to change anytime soon. That's a good place to leave it. And when I say that Jonathan wrote the book on this topic, he literally wrote the book on it. There's a brand new handbook on China-Middle East relations that Jonathan wrote earlier this year. Uh, this is the benchmark in these studies. So there's some great scholars out there, but Jonathan, congratulations 
on the new book. Congratulations on all the media appearances that you made this week. You were really a, a force of nature out there in the media this week. We'll put a link if you want to buy the book. Believe it or not, the ebook is actually quite affordable. Don't even think about buying the hard copy. Sorry, Jonathan, but at 152 pounds a pop, <laughs> that's an expensive buy. But uh, the ebook is only at 32 pounds. So you can, uh, that's accessible. I highly recommend it. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this busy week and to help us make sense of everything that was going on. If people want to follow all of your insights, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, um, you'll find me on Twitter pretty regularly. It's at Jonathan D. Fulton. And also, I have to plug, I've got my own podcast now. Um, you guys inspired me. Yes. So Go ahead, after, plug away. Yeah, after being on your show a few times, I was like, man, that looks fun. So through the Atlanta Council, I have, it's called the China Mina Podcast. We're not nearly as prolific as you guys yet. We just do one a month at this point. But yeah, the whole point is just to talk to folks from the region or folks from China and try to give a fuller picture of what's happening. And, you know, it's a modest show, but I think it's it's pretty fun. No, it's an absolutely indispensable show. And I'll tell you, one of the things that we're doing with that show is we're taking sound bites out of the show and our Arabic team is translating them and posting them into Arabic because cool. the show is absolutely so good. So congratulations on the show. We're going to put links to Jonathan's show, the book, and his Twitter handle all in the show notes. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Had fun. Kobus, Jonathan was part of a small coterie of China Middle East experts who kept saying the same thing over and over again, that the prevailing media narratives that we saw were just not right. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with the reporters in the region who, again, do know the story, but the editors back home. And again, as Jonathan was saying, you know, they have a preconceived notion of what this story is about. I, too, was frustrated looking at a lot of the coverage, which framed it in the U.S.-China geopolitical context. And it comes back down to what we were talking about in the African context and what we've covered for years, that not everything has to do with the U.S. and China great power competition. The countries have their own agendas. And, and I think that, to me, is the biggest takeaway from what Jonathan was saying, not only today on the show, but also previously over the course of the past week leading up to the summit. Yeah, we certainly see very similar dynamics in, in you know in relation to the US Africa Leaders Summit, you know, like very very similar complaints that the press coverage kept trying to kind of like push it back into the geopolitical horse race narrative. And meanwhile, both the US, China, Africa, everyone is trying to get away from that narrative. But, you know, at the same time, you know, geopolitics and international power are real, you know, and, and I think for a lot of a lot of people that is the kind of the basic kind of frame within which they, they they can relate to these stories. That's an interesting point that you raise. And it, and it brings me back to this idea, again, that looking at the U.S. relationship in the Middle East as a one-dimensional thing, either we're there or we're not there. And the fact is that the United States may have grown a little bit tired and weary of the engagement of the past 15, 20 years, in part because of the, the, the trauma of the wars, also the fact that the Arab-Israeli conflict feels intractable and the United States just doesn't feel like it's making progress on it. There's a whole bunch of different things. The American public just has had enough. And at the same time, the geopolitical considerations have shifted out here to the Asia-Pacific region. That being said, the United States is not going to leave the region. And this is the, the assessment of all the top experts, people like Jonathan. And so this idea that the United States is going to leave and the Chinese are going to come fill a vacuum is ridiculous. We're not going to see the Chinese fleet patrolling the Persian Gulf. 
and kind of providing that type of security that the United States has done. That's just not going to happen simply because the Chinese don't have the capability to do that right now, nor is it in their long-term interest to do so because they don't want to get dragged into these conflicts. Now, I said something interesting in our newsletter on this issue, and I got some pushback, which is very interesting. I love these debates that we get, where I said that the Chinese are not going to be mediators in regional conflicts. They have you know, feigned interest in being a mediator in the Arab-Israeli conflict. I remember Jonathan and others saying nobody asked for the Chinese to mediate these conflicts. That being said, the pushback that I got was from a a very well-known analyst who said, listen, the Chinese played an instrumental role in the Iran nuclear talks, the JCPOA. So they do have some experience in managing some of these relationships, but I just don't believe that they're going to be an active player in the politics of the region. They're going to try and rise above as much of it to do business, to make it a destination for Chinese tech and to create new markets, but they really are going to do their very best about getting sucked into some of the sectarian conflicts and the intractable politics that have doomed many great powers who have arrived before them. I agree. To to a large extent, China not wanting to replicate the the role of other large powers in the Middle East is generally good news, right? I mean, like because large powers in the Middle East have tended to not have such a great run there. And I mean, you know, kind of for all of the all of the security that the US has provided, the the US has also had some pretty traumatic times in the US and in the Middle East, and that was also they were also pretty traumatic for the Middle East. So, you know, so in that sense, like in the first place, the idea that that if the US retreats, then it will be replaced by somehow a US number two form of China obviously makes no sense, you know, because I I don't think that takes into account the the uniqueness of the US. But a lot of people say that. I mean, a lot of people say that, though. I mean, that is the thinking of a lot of people. But I don't understand why they say that, though. Like, you know, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense to me, you know, kind of because both those things can be true at once, right? Kind of, I mean, the US can be retreating, the China can be growing, but it doesn't mean that, that the way that China grows is going to fill in all the voids that the US will leave, you know? I can well imagine that the US can simply retreat on its own, and that's it, you know? Um, that, you know, that no one fills, fills that void, and that other kind of, like, regional kind of, like, ways of dealing with problems start emerging, you know? Um, it's, you, you know, so, so in that sense, the, the kind of world-unique aspect of the US, I, I feel like no one is 100% kind of really taking, you know, really reflecting that that adequately. Yeah. The one, the other bad take on this whole thing that I felt from last week was this whole narrative that, see, China's coming to the Saudis and the royal family is rolling out this lavish welcome, and they didn't do that for the Americans. And that was something that the pro-China crowd on Twitter was saying and saying, see, they like us more. The fact is that that was at a request of the Americans. That's how I understood it, yes. That's right. The politics of Saudi Arabia and the United States are terrible, and the optics of Biden you know, being feted by MBS just would not have gone down well. So this whole idea, particularly because in the U.S., it also stand in contrast to the Trump visit, you know, with the with the glowing orb and so on, which which it had its own kind of weird set of optics, and and obviously it plays into U.S. politics, domestic politics differently. So that was a complete BS line from a lot of China supporters who were saying, "Look how much the Saudis, you know, value the Chinese more than the Americans." When in fact, again, you have to look at these from the domestic interests and the geopolitical interests of each individual country, and in this case, that includes the United States. And yeah. people who said that really did not understand domestic American politics about the Khashoggi killing, the whole idea of the on fossil fuels. There are so many different issues, women and human rights in the Saudis that complicate 
the Saudi-U.S. relationship. And again, this is... And I mean, in addition to that, I would add that just as much as Biden didn't need a massive pageant of, you know, kind of like flybys and purple carpets and so on, so much she probably did need that. You know, kind of like he like he was coming off a very rough time domestically. So, so I can well imagine that that having the full pageant would be very convenient for him to, you know, kind of to, to, to blanket CG, CGTN with, you know. So like, I think domestic politics played a big role on both of those sides. So be careful of the simple narratives on all sides. That, I think, is the big takeaway from our discussion today. Just don't believe the simple narratives because nine times out of 10, they're not true. I mean, they're not true anywhere, and especially on a place like Twitter, which just relishes simple narratives. But again, also, I get frustrated in the fact that, once again, you know, the international press really has a very difficult time covering the, the China Global South story. <laughs> they really do. I mean, it's just, it's a hard thing for them to get their heads around. And I think we saw that again in a lot of the coverage. Not all the coverage, as Jonathan pointed out. There was some good stuff. And now, in the post-summit analysis, we're starting to see a lot more great stuff. And we've been showcasing that all a week in our newsletter. So for subscribers, you guys get all the good stuff. If you would like to join this growing community of readers that we have who read our, our newsletter every day, leverage the archives, get insights from people like Jonathan Fulton, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you'll see we've got monthly and annual rates, plus we've got a student discount as well. Once again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Kobus, let's leave the conversation there. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China Global South podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com. <laughs>